Well, hopefully you, uh, you have your Bible with you. We're going to look in the book of Luke, chapter 15, and um, at one of the best-known stories or passages, uh, at least one of the most frequently uh, preached on passages uh, from the Gospels. It's the story of the prodigal son. And uh, just a quick outline, if you were to break down uh, verses 11 through 32 of Luke chapter 15, uh, there's probably different ways to classify it, but I would, I would suggest this, that those first few verses of 11 through 16 focus on uh, the rebellion of particularly the younger son, uh, one we know best, the prodigal son. Uh, then verses 17 through 24, really we see this amazing and beautiful picture of repentance and reunification with the Father. Then there's this, this paragraph that follows in verses 25 through 31 where, ironically, we see uh, a picture of the rejection not from the Father but of the older son toward, towards the Father. It's an intriguing piece, and we'll look at that here in a minute, and then it ends with this crescendo, I think this great summary of reunification and, 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 and really welcome into the family in verse 32 as the father reminds his oldest son again that what was lost has been found, what was dead is now alive, and we need to celebrate. Uh, Shakespeare uh, spoke of the prodigal son and some of his works not only Shakespeare, but Arthur Sullivan uh, did an oratorio of this. Sergei Prokofiev wrote a ballet that dealt with the prodigal son. Uh, artists that illustrate the story, the picture, such as Rembrandt and others. Uh, even Hank Williams wrote a song about the prodigal son. It, it's a common theme. It's a story that's known inside and outside of the church, one of the most preached on passages, and that can be a little dangerous because if it's been preached on a lot, you run the risk of, of, of sharing an angle that might seem a little out of the box. Uh, it also runs the risk of people going, oh yeah, the prodigal son got it, nap time. But it is truly a scandalous passage. And, and I use that word very uh, specifically, two primary reasons. It's, it's scandalous in the response of the sons, both sons, and, and rather scandalous and staggering if you look at the response of the father. I read a story of a dad that uh, was having one of those special moments with his middle school daughter. And he sat down with her and he began to recite the story of the prodigal son to her and just, just narrate it to her. Uh, he told her about how there was this young boy that decided he had had enough and wanted the inheritance, and the father gives him the inheritance, and he goes off to a faraway land and squanders it and ends up sitting among all these pigs and thinking, what have I done? Well, they welcome me back, and so he takes the risk to go home, and his father welcomes him, and they throw a party. And he kind of gets to the crescendo of the story. It's that moment, right? As parents, we have these moments with our kids, hopefully, and you're just hoping for this moving thing. Like, And he turns to his daughter and he says, Honey, what, what's your takeaway? I mean, what impacts you from that story? And she gave it some thought. And she said, Dad, you know what? I think what I walk away with from that is never leave home without a credit card. <laughs> uh, that was an odd parenting moment, I'm sure. How do you blend that back into Scripture? I have to be honest, I see the story of the prodigal son as certainly one of my favorites, but also one of, one of the most disturbing in some ways. 
I grew up in a home that I was born into a home where ministry was happening. Dad was a pastor, um, went to vacation Bible school, uh, went to church every Sunday. Since I can remember, uh, my understanding was prior to me coming uh, to give my life to Christ, if I had to say, you know, what was I repenting of? Um, certainly I needed Jesus. That was very real to me at five years old when I heard the gospel in a, in, in a fresh way for me and very real conversion experience for me in my five-year-old mind. I think I was primarily repenting of, I was told that one of my practices uh, from a young age was to get change out of the offering plate. And unfortunately, I would do this once the offering, this is one of these traditional churches where it would be brought back to the front and left here. And so my dad would be preaching, and I guess a couple of times, apparently, I have no recollection of this, I promise I have repented of it, but I came to the front and made change. Uh, Terribly embarrassing for my family, and certainly something I needed to change. But at five years old, that's, I mean, it's that that innocence. And, And so then growing up in a call to ministry, and that was kind of the story of my life. And, and as I read The Prodigal Son, one of the things that's always been a bit troubling is, who do I relate with? I mean, I'm not really angry with, with God for His amazing grace and mercy to those who have, as it says here, uh, gone and done reckless things. In fact, I'm amazed and I preach it and I love it and I'm blown away by it, but where do I fit in? That, that's been what's troubled me for years. Because I guess I'm kind of like the older brother, and, and there have been times where even, and you may relate to this, where I have to confess when I hear these amazing conversion stories as people tell of their kind of reckless living and, and how God intersected and, and the Spirit transformed and miracles happened, and I just am going to be honest with you, there's times where I've sat and thought, man, i got to go out and do something really bad so that I can taste whatever this amazing grace is. And then God kind of pulls me back and slow down, and, and yet I wrestle with that. You see, there's several misunderstandings that happen out of this uh, uh, really parable, out of this story, and, and I want to address them in a minute, but let's, let's read it. So Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, let me just read it to you. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs." And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A couple of misunderstandings that come out of this that I would highlight to you. Number one is this, that the main character of the story we just read is, is really not the son. We might call it the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, some of your Bibles may have retitled it the parable of the loving father, and that is far more accurate because that is the main character. The father is the main character of the story. Uh, if you look back in verse 2 for a minute, Jesus is responding these stories, there's three of them, he's responding to a comment from the Pharisees and the scribes, a comment we see repeated in several Gospels. In verse 2 it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus' response is to demonstrate through these three stories how when something is lost or someone is lost, the extent, the passion of the father to run after it, the passion of the owner to run after it, whether it's the shepherd with the lost sheep or the owner of the lost coin or this story we're looking at, the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son. In fact, Really, that's the second misunderstanding, is this story not only is the main character, the father, but it is the story of two lost sons. Uh, to me, years ago, that was kind of this light bulb moment, you know, because the, the, the older son can oftentimes be the one that we kind of cling to because I, I've got to relate to one or the other. And so as a follower of Christ, and perhaps one that uh, maybe your story is similar to mine of, of growing up in, in, in the context of church and growing up having made overall good choices and, and, and maybe not being classified in the reckless living uh, road. It has to be the older son I relate to. After all, he's the son and has a... Re well, I thought he had a relationship, and we find as we read this that actually he didn't have a relationship with the father, at least not one that really was one of sonship. And so that second misunderstanding is that this really is the story of two prodigal sons. One of the greatest tragedies, I think, of, of this parable is how so many Christians throughout the ages, we've classified ourselves as the older brother, and the problem is, if we had to look at this through the context of, of coming to Christ, of, of, of hearing the gospel and, and, and embracing God's mercy and the Father embracing us, and so this being an illustration of the gospel, perhaps uh, even the older son was not a believer. The problem is that for many, we don't really see ourselves in that extreme rebellion, 
as the younger son. For some of us, we do. For some of us, we go, hey, listen, I can tell you stories. That reckless living thing, that describes me. But for many of us, we unfortunately have found ourselves falling into this rut, if you may, of kind of living the Christian American dream, where we do the right things. We do church every week. We even sign up to serve. Maybe we teach a class. Maybe we sacrifice by giving up a service so we can do this. We give our tithe. We perhaps give a special offering when appropriate. We extend ourselves a little more, and thus we feel good, not unlike the older brother, because we're following the rules. We're playing in the middle of the field. We're not coming up close to the edges. I would suggest that our faith, if that's the case, is pretty safe. It's interesting that this morning we see uh, the, the video of the joy prom and we see or we hear the reality of the need for adoption and foster care and though there are many, many, many other ways as well, I think of those two areas as ways where our faith can be stretched where we might do something a little dangerous, something a little out of the box, something that doesn't seem quite safe so that God can be God and demonstrate some amazing power. But you don't understand, we're not ready for that. I, I, I'm not entirely sure when I'm living my faith on the edge the way God calls me to, the way the redeemed younger prodigal son probably lived, that life is going to be perfect for me to take that step of risky faith. And the older brother was playing it safe. And what the older brother found out was that his relationship with the father really wasn't what he thought. See, Scripture makes it clear that there's an expectation of all of us to understand our place before God. We know these verses well, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To me, too often that verse is part of the gospel presentation when I'm sharing it with others. Too often that verse is, is rightfully used as I share with a, a young man or a young lady or a friend or whoever that might be, a family member who I see really kind of off the deep end or something, and I want to say, hey, listen, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when have I taken and looked in the mirror and gone, yes, I too, just as the younger brother have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8, uh, two chapters later, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that we would understand, particularly those of us perhaps who sit as, as, as good, uh, kind of older brother, compliant Christians, that we are two sinners saved by grace. That's my prayer today. If you said, well, where are you headed here? My prayer is that perhaps if, if someone here today goes, you know what, I have never received the embrace of the Father, that you would come to know for the first time perhaps that amazing transformation of the gospel. But for many of us, perhaps today is a day too to receive the embrace of the Father from the perspective of being on my knees and understanding that without that embrace, I have no relationship. For many, the prospect of not being the older brother and, and maybe not relating to the recklessness of the younger brother leaves this hole, kind of almost a panic. Where do I fit? 
What kind of response does the Father have to me? Because I'm playing the field, I'm playing it safe, I'm doing it right. Where does the Father come running to me? Because I don't really need it like the younger brother. And I hope you hear today from God's Word that the Father breaks through the crowd and runs towards you whether you're in the middle of the field or sitting right on the edge. Because that's his scandalous love that's here. Look at the passage with me for a moment. In verse 12, uh, right after there's a statement Jesus makes. There was a man who had two sons. There we begin. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And essentially that statement, so much is involved in that statement and what follows. That young man essentially says, Dad, I just assume you'd be dead. Because once you die, I get the inheritance. So how about we just act like that's the case now? And would you give me my share now? And it says, and he, the father, divided his property between them. And for some reason, and I don't know if you relate to this, but for some reason, for years as I've read this story growing up and into ministry years as a pastor, I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that the father didn't just jump on a horse or a donkey and go down to the bank and withdraw the portion for his son. I, I guess I kind of assumed it was that easy. But this impl implies, especially in the Jewish culture, that this father had to go and sell properties. This was a process. It wasn't today the son came and tomorrow he has all his money. This was a process that probably lasted months as the father went through all the procedures and, and, and everything necessary to divide the property, to sell this property, to get the money, to get the way that he was going to present it to the son. And as he did it, it was as if he was saying, therefore I am now apparently dead in your eyes. That's the tragedy of it, and the son, uh, that's really the relationship he had with the father, essentially none. But it's not much different with the older brother, because if you drop down to verse 29, we're not told at the beginning what the older brother says, because he doesn't show up till later in the story, but in verse 29, the brother answers, the son, older son, answers the father and he says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The language there implies he's talking about, hey, I, I've done the work of the servant for years. Uh, earlier, the, the, the older brother even makes the statement, when this, actually it's the verse right after, when this son of yours, he doesn't even acknowledge he's his brother. I mean, he's angry. The older brother didn't really have a relationship either. I don't know how he would have qualified it, but there was certainly no intimacy. And it's the heartbeat of the father to us today that we would know that he yearns for an intimate relationship. He yearns for something that's vibrant, that's something that pulls us out of the comfort faith that we might live in right here, right in this community, to live on the edge, to take risks. I'll never forget a gentleman from our church in California when I informed the church that I was moving to North Carolina to work for Samaritan's Purse. He came up to me and he said, I'm mad at you. I knew there'd be reactions. I didn't expect that one. He said, I'm mad at you. I said, why are you mad at me? And he said, I'm mad at you because you have the courage to step out of your box and go to North Carolina. And I think he just meant leave the pastor. I don't think it was any statement against the East Coast. Don't worry. It was just this sense of taking a risk. And, and I had never thought of it that way. 
It was just responding to God's call. And I wonder how many of us would be willing to do that, as risky as it might be. And then there's this turning point in the story. We we read of the reckless living. It it, it doesn't take long for the younger son to go and and live recklessly and, and to squander everything he'd been given and find himself surrounded by pigs, yearning for food, just yearning for some of the husks of the corn to eat that, and not even that was something he could have. And then the turning point came in verse 17 when he says, but when he came to himself, he came to his senses. He woke up and realized the, the, the truth of his predicament. And he looked around and he came to himself, he came to his senses, and he repented. I love the description of repentance here. He kind of rehearses it in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. You have to understand, this was massive. His expectation is that he would arrive home and they would not even acknowledge him as a member of the family. And he rehearses his repentance. I have sinned against heaven, against heaven. And before you, his repentance is is before God. I've sinned against heaven, against the the God of the universe, and before you, Father, you're my witness. I have sinned against God, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I've come to grips with that. See, the problem with the older son is he figured he was still worthy. He never got, he never was worthy were it not for the Father. I, I am not worthy regardless of walking a relatively decent life for years, I am still not worthy because one sin, however small it is, separates me in a chasm that only can be crossed by the cross of Christ. For the older brother, his turning point doesn't exist. In the passage, Jesus never gives us a turning point for the older brother. We never witness that. In fact, Jesus really kind of leaves it hanging. He addresses his father as his boss. I've served you, not not as a father. He doesn't even acknowledge his younger brother as a brother, this son of yours. And he's actually surprised at his father's love. It's as if he'd never seen this before. He He certainly had never experienced it. Is repentance that important, I might ask? And I think we would all agree, at least here, from my mouth out, yes, it is. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That verse to me is is astounding, and and especially as we think of so many that need to hear the gospel, that they would repent. And Jesus, when are you coming back? You're patient with us. I know you're coming soon. You're waiting that all might repent. And yet I've got to stop in light of something like the prodigal son in this story and go, wait a minute, where has my repentance been? Have I acknowledged this? Jesus was addressing the Pharisees and the scribes, if you may, the older brothers of that day. I don't know what image comes to your mind as we've been going through Mark. We see this over and over again. Pastor Scott's been drawing it out so beautifully, the reality of the religious leaders, and you kind of just picture them standing there like, what are you trying to say? And as Jesus probably narrated this, I I would envision, imagine that some of them were like, yeah, yeah, that's me. 
But when, but when Jesus turns it and begins to describe the, the response of the father, both to the, the, the returning son as well as to the older brother, I can't imagine what was going on inside the minds of those Pharisees and scribes because if they were honest, it was the stark realization that they had no relationship to speak of with the God of the universe. See, we've made several dangerous mistakes, I think. Sometimes we've equated obeying the rules with a relationship with God. Now, now please don't, don't hear me wrong. I could get in big trouble if the assumption is, well, you know, this pastor stood up and said, don't worry about obeying the rules. On the contrary, it's just that I think we've gotten the order flipped. I think too often we live this safe, obey the rules life in order to get the relationship. And the Father says, that's not how grace and mercy works. Grace is unmerited favor. It starts with receiving my grace in, in repentance and in kind of scandal and, and being blown away. My response is, Father, there is nothing else I want to do than to honor you and to walk in the way you've called me to. It's born out of relationship. It doesn't start with the doing. It starts with the being that leads to the doing. That's a mistake that we might find ourselves in consciously or unconsciously. The other one is that I think for some, we believe that God's love towards us is proportionate to our rebellion. Perhaps you can relate to me where you look across or you listen to a story out of reckless living and transformed life and you go, wow, God is so loving. Man, that is a tragic response because it's as if to say, wow, they, they really need God's love. I'm already worthy of it. I'm pretty good. But look at them because, wow, the Father, that is serious grace, God. A mess, and you love them. Much easier to love me, I'm sure. A mess, and that's the kind of internal dialogue, whether we're aware of it or not, that creates this deep theological mistake. Because the reality is, the same degree of love of the Father we'll see right now is the same degree that God wants to lavish on us. Think of the father's response. If you look right there, it says, as, as, as the younger son is returning, it says in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's at this point that the older brothers, the scribes and the Pharisees, had to have been ready to go, that's it. That's it. This dude needs to be crucified now. Because he just violated everything to do with our culture. The father is looking. It says he saw him. The whole implication of that phrase that the father was keeping an eye out for his son. You need to understand that in that Jewish community, it was crystal clear that when you rejected the family, when you asked for your inheritance, when you left and decided to go live a reckless life. That's it. There's no grace, no mercy. It's an honor, shame, society. You're done. So much so that there was a, a kind of a ceremony, if you may. I wouldn't call it a welcome, but a ceremony. If that individual returned to the community, there was a moment where the, the, the members of the community would gather around them if they had the guts to return home. And they'd have large earthenware vessels filled with uh, burnt corn and burnt nuts. 
and there was significance there, and they'd break those earthenware vessels, and that would fall out, and then they would proclaim in a loud voice to you, the returnee, that you have no place in this community, you are not welcome, and you are not related to anyone here. You are an orphan. That was what the younger son expected. And if by chance his father far away would listen, he would say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. Have grace and mercy on me. But instead the father was like, where is he? I love my son. I miss my son. And that's what the father does with open arms he runs. In fact, it says that he ran and embraced and kissed. He did everything against culture. He messed the whole thing up. To run, I've never tried this because I've never worn the long Jewish robes, but to run, he had to hike something up. And it wasn't just show the ankles. The ankles was anathema. You don't show your ankles. Thank you, Lord. He showed more than the ankles. He showed his calves, and he got it up a ways because he was running he violated every rule in the book, and God has a tendency of doing that because that's how much he loves you. And whether you're playing right in the center of the field and you go, God, I don't know where you are, God bursts out of the crowd and says, I love you, and I will break every rule to make sure you know of my grace and my mercy because it starts there. And that's what the Father did. God's response to everyone, not just the reckless living stories, but to everyone is the same open arms, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And I would imagine the son was just desperately trying to get to his knees to give his repentance, and the father's probably holding him, and they're weeping. I don't know, but it must have been amazing, and I'll just be honest with you. I yearn for that. I want to experience that. And the Father says, you did. I did it on the cross for you, Chris. And if you were the only one that needed it, if all you had done is made change in the offering plate and that would have separated us, I still would have done it because that's how much I love you. So play by the rules, but do it because you're in love with me. In our repentance, the Son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he was reckless. It's, I don't know what the father did if it was just, yeah, yeah. Anyways, so guys, go get the fattened calf. But the father was even being reckless here. He said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, reinstate his sonship. He is now my adopted son and no one takes that away. Now kill the fattened calf and let's party. Let's have a joy prom like none other. Because what was lost has been found. What is dead is alive. Let's celebrate. And what's so disturbing to me about God, excuse me for saying it that way, is God says, I love you. Now you're free to go. Because God is passionate about a relationship. He refuses to step in and stop us or others from doing wrong because he wants true relationship. And so he says, I love you. Now you're free to go. It's not based on performance. Our works are just a response to that relationship. To the older son, you have been outwardly close to me. You were always with me. All that is mine is yours. You've had access to everything, yet you reject me. We, we've had the opportunity, son, and, and yet you've held me at arm's length. In fact, son, you don't even think you're lost. 
You believe my love is contingent on what you do. And that's where there was no connection. There was no relationship. Because the older son failed to understand what sonship meant. And thus he failed to see what fatherhood implied. This last week we had donuts with dad at uh, preschool. And my five-year-old invited me in to sit under, on his chair, which was like folding myself under the table. And then he handed me a donut and a cup of coffee and, and this booklet. And in it, he had written some responses. And one of those, which choked me up big time, was, uh, I would uh, tr- never trade my dad for, and he was to fill in the blank, and he put anything. And I thought, Father, might our relationship be that way? that I would never trade you for anything because you embrace me. Jesus left it unfinished. It's an open invitation to enter into relationship, to repent, to enter into his arms. Think of it this way. This is how much the Father loved you and I, is that Jesus essentially was born crucified. See, Jesus intentionally planted the tree from which his cross would be carved. He put in the center of the earth the iron ore from which his nails that would, that would pierce his hands and feet would be taken. He voluntarily placed Judas in the womb of a woman. Jesus already knew and was looking and came running. In 1992, the Barcelona Olympics, Derek Redman, you may have seen this, if not heard it, uh, favored to win the 400 meters. He had come only to compete in the 400 meters. It was his life dream. He had missed the prior Olympics. He had trained and trained and trained, and it was the semifinals, and the top four would qualify for the finals, and there he was lined up, and you hear the gun get shot off, and they're off and running, and you see it on TV, a crowd of 65,000. As Derek Redmond rounds the turn about 150 meters from the end, you could almost hear the pop as his hamstring ripped. And he starts walking and slowing down and is completely stopped for a moment. Security gathers around him and he pushes them away and he jumps up and he begins to hobble down the track. And way up in the stands at the top where Jim, Derek's dad, always sat, Jim began to make his way down. And Derek was hobbling towards the finish line and out of the crowd bursts his dad, and his dad gets past security. He says, that's my son. I'm going to help him. And you see him get her by his son and put his arm around him, and, and Derek's crying, and his father's like, I'm going to be there. And afterwards, Jim said, I told him, do you want to finish? And Derek said, yes, I want to finish. And his dad said, then we're doing it together. And it's kind of that way how the father says to you and to me, he bursts out of the stands and he gets in the field with you and he says, right where you are, in the middle or on the side, I love you and I will violate every reckless thing you can think of that you might know my love. And out of that grace, you need to live a radically reckless faith for me because the angel of the Lord encamps around you. And it's not too dangerous to step out and take some risks. Father, thank you. Thank you for bursting out of the stands, for bursting into earth, your creation, and putting skin on Jesus. And embracing 
and kissing and hugging and running to us. And Father, it is my passionate prayer this morning that through your word, God, no one would leave this place without a sense of either for the first time in their life repenting and engaging in a Father that runs to them through Jesus. Or for many, perhaps, who have just lived a safe and kind of uh, obedient life, that we would know the experience of a deep, profound, unmerited favor relationship with the Father. In Jesus' name.